this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hey friends, before we get into this week's episode and all the books, I just want to let you know or remind you if you've been paying attention these last few weeks that at Book Riot, we are doing a huge mystery giveaway for 15 of the best new mysteries of the year, all from people of color and LGBTQ authors. The giveaway is open until May 9th, but you should probably not wait to go enter it. If you're curious about what some of those titles are, you can get Down the River Unto the Sea by Walter Mosley, Phoenix Burning by Isabella Maldonado. Hiroshima Boy by Naomi Hirahara, The Master Key by Masako Tagawa and Simon N.C. Grove. That one's in translation as well. Something fun called Death by Dumpling by Vivian Chin and many more. So if you'd like to win 15 of the best new mysteries of 2018 so far, go to bookriot.com slash mystery giveaway to enter. That's bookriot.com slash mystery giveaway to enter by May 9th. This is the Book Riot Podcast, weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode, episode, episode 259. We're recording on Friday, May 4th. May the 4th be with you. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Man, I was looking forward to the May the 4th joke. I was going to delight you with my Star Wars <sighs> references. Yeah. Well, I, I, I cannot be delighted, so don't worry about that. That's, uh, <laughs> well, that's beyond the pale of my today, experiences. Man. This is a day of no delights. Not today, yeah. We, we came in, you know, uh, Thursday is our normal recording day, and we're recording on Friday. Um, so our, the show would have been a lot different if we recorded yesterday. It would have been. In. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's um, another in a sequence of, you'd have to call them bummer shows. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute, but a lot of news to talk about. But not, one thing that is not a bummer, is that Rebecca made her writing, producing debut of Annotated for the most recent episode called The Original Gone Girl. It's about the 11-day mysterious disappearance of Agatha Christie. And uh, it's a good show. It's out now. You can go to bookrack.com slash listen, and uh, you can navigate to it there. Find Annotated wherever you find your podcast. Really great. A lot of you have been rating and reviewing the show over the last couple of weeks. I've, I notice. I see you. I don't know exactly who you are, but I see the numbers going up. And I think that a response to direct calls were like, please uh, rate and review the show. Because it does help, um, especially when we're trying to get sponsors. Say, look how many reviews we have, but also it helps Apple agri- uh, Apple's podcast algorithm. Rebecca, do you want to say anything? Don't say anything about the show. Do you want to say anything yeah. about the writing process? You, oh. You've seen these things happen before. Yeah. What did you learn? Is it harder, easier, different? What do you think about it making one of those things a different super way? super interesting. You know, like I had the benefit of not only having seen the ones that you've been writing, but having Mm. performed them. And I think knowing what it feels like to have all the words come out of your mouth makes a difference in the writing of a thing too. Um, It was really fun. The story is bananas. Um, And so I knew when you pitched me the episode, like you knew sort of the bare bones of the story. And when I went and read the Agatha Christie biography um, by Laura Thompson, there's like so much more 
to it, um, the piecing together of the timeline and like the multiple layers of weirdness about the story were really like, that was interesting and challenging in a fun way. Like I kept thinking about how you and I have talked about that. We both like interesting messes. Um, and yes. the story of this thing is an interesting mess and there's a lot of layers to it and a lot of layers to Agatha Christie and figuring out how to lay those out in a way that conveyed through a 20 minute podcast mm. was a really fun challenge. Um, and also writing for the two of us was really fun and interesting. Um, and I think certainly would have been different if we hadn't have spent like thousands of hours podcasting together already. Yeah. It, that, that part definitely does help. I mean, I think probably, I think we talked about this briefly is like in the format we do, which is 20 minutes. So really we have between three and 4,000 words mm-hmm. and we try to pick relatively small you know, digest things that we feel like we can, uh, pitches we can hit in that amount of time. But even so, there's there's so much you don't get to include. Like there's so much good stuff you don't get to include. I think that's, that's, I find that part especially difficult. Like if I got all this stuff, how do I make it into a solid 18 minutes with ads? Yeah, there were a lot of nuggets that I wish I could have put in or like little notes that I had to myself of like, oh, if you have a minute, put this in here. But I think it's kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, early on in doing this show, we like way overloaded the agendas because we had this feeling of like, what if we don't have enough? Um, and it right. took us a couple of years, but we did eventually learn like there's always enough show. And I had And that- now we're like enough already publishing enough, right. enough news, <laughs> enough of all this stuff. Yeah. Give us a break, can um, you? And I feel like I can't believe now having written the annotated episode that I was ever worried about filling the 20 minutes like I could have filled three sets of 20 minutes if I really Mm -hmm. you know wanted to use all of the little tidbits and the fascinating things about her and about her life and um, so boiling it down to like what is not necessarily just the most interesting but the most relevant like the one line of the story you're trying to tell um, was really fun it's a kind of writing that I had never done before it was a really fun new thing Um, it was the first time in a long time that I've been nervous about something going out into the world Ah, which is also I think a fun um, I think that's a fun experience. Be like, oh, I made something that's so different for me that I'm like, I'm very used to, you know, a podcast going out and people have feelings about it and whatever. Um, but a new piece of writing that's a new kind of writing for me, it was, um, it was a fun thing. I really loved doing it. I would like to do more of them. Yeah, we're, we're planning to do more. We have another guest writer um, who's someone that you haven't heard of, probably a um, friend of the show, an old, old time book writer, writer and um, who's going to work on one. So that's an ongoing experiment to see if we can produce these in a different cadence somehow. The other thing I found about writing the show is uh, even on, on scripts I feel good about, I always feel, I, maybe this is all writing, I guess, is like this. Like, God, it could have been a little bit better. It's like, oh, oh you yeah. know, like they always leave a little, wanting a little bit more of like, oh, you know what? I didn't quite, the thing that was in my head didn't quite make it onto the page. And so one nice thing about these, frankly, I have to admit with my writing style is you got to ship the thing. Like we have a published date. We got to record the thing a couple weeks before so that Kyle can edit it because it takes quite a bit of time on that, as you might imagine. It's like you got to ship. So you got to stop writing. Mm-hmm. So and then you then there's another one and you can work on it. So there's there's that pressure and constraint. But it's also nice in terms of iterative improvement. You're like you get one out the door and you can work on another one. Right, And you I do like then well. just have to let it go. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You have to let it go. One note that we didn't have in the show that we got some feedback on this episode for, and we're going to take it to heart for other times. But if you do listen to this show, we don't mention it before it happens, but there is a spoiler for Agatha Christie's novel, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which is germane to understanding the full complexity of the episode, but it's there. And you know if that's something if you're if if, if that's a, a anathema to you I guess don't listen I would encourage everyone to listen you know that way that, we had this discussion on the insiders one of the great things about insiders is real time feedback and you it's 
it's a safe space in this regard is like people will read read you generously from the beginning. That doesn't mean they'll just shut up if they disagree with you, which is kind of what you want in a situation like this. But we had a lot of talk about spoilers and, you know, how to do it. Audio is a particularly difficult thing because, you know, we, there are tricks in print or print, I print, did web, right? Mm-hmm. You can do with spoilers below or like highlight this to get the spoilers. Audio, it's really tricky. Show, no one reads the show notes, what and what, what have you. But um, thank you for that feedback there. But that is a note that I don't want anyone to have um, their yuck or their yum yucked <laughs> for the episode or or for the book. Um, I will say, though, like that. in general, one of the things that we've learned about annotated and like I guess one of the misconceptions Mm -hmm. about the show is most many of these shows do pertain to a particular book this one doesn't Um, but there's a show about Ulysses there's a show about 1984 but none of those like it's kind of about the cultural stories around these things you don't need to have read the book in order to get what happens in the episode so if you've been holding off on some of those for that reason you're pretty safe and I will also say because I'm a little bit of a jerk, there's a lot of research that knowing spoilers does not actually decrease people's enjoyment (laughs) of pieces of cultural media. Um, So like we, Jeff and I disagreed about this spoiler thing with Agatha Christie and I'm very in the like, sorry, not sorry camp there. Mm. I would not have spoiler warning the top of that show um, for reasons of science. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what I would have done. I don't know what I would have done. I just, I hadn't I mean, thought we, about like it. Like we so, talked about yeah. it. I think you even, like you made a note in the script of like, are we worried about spoilers here? And I was like, oh, nope. Oh, did I? Boy, mm-hmm. I don't remember that. See, I, <laughs> this is how, this is how spoilers don't matter. This is how you know spoilers don't matter. Things you say yourself, you don't remember. <laughs> and it, you know, I'm, I was unspoiled for this conversation. Um, for uh, anyway, well, go check it out. I really recommend you listening. Let's do a sponsor. Okay. Uh, what do we got here? Oh, Okay. This episode of the Book Riot Podcast is sponsored by Nocturnal Meetings of the Misplaced by R.J. Garcia from the Parliament House. Here's, here, here's, what's, here's what's going on with this. Mystery surrounds summertime Indiana, where 15-year-old Tommy and his little sister are sent to live with relatives they've never met. Tommy's invited out to late-night meetings by his new neighbor, Finn. These meetings become a place where kids who don't fit in school or home finally belong. As the group of friends slowly unravel long-buried secrets, they discover the truth is darker and closer than they ever imagined. If they live to tell the tale, will anyone believe them? These are Ooh. new friends discovering old secrets. This coming-of-age suspense novel explores the lives of a fringe group of teens who discover dark secrets exist in the cracks of mundane small-town life. you got a cold case, abuse, neglect, meddling kids, friendship, and, of course, young love. That's The Nocturnal Meetings of the Misplaced by R.J. Garcia. Thanks to them for sponsoring this week's show. I want to do one other shout out before we get to the broccoli. Um, okay, please. <laughs> I just I took was, the uh, deepest Kim, breath of like, no. I, I, I know. I know. Just, I, that was, that was, I'm sorry. That was maybe unfair. You're all geared up to go to the dentist and like, oh, actually, we're going to the grocery store first. Um, I want to shout out that Kim Okura, our friend, colleague, host of our For Real podcast, was kind enough to have let me co-host the most recent episode of the For Real podcast, which is about nonfiction. It comes out every other week. Um, she and Alice are the regular co-hosts, but I stepped in, you know, it's, sometimes things happen and people need a break. Um, and you got to get schmucks like me in there to fill in. But we talked about Mother's Day gift ideas. Um, mm. So we're not doing that for this show this year. So you can go over there for nonfiction picks. Also, she let me babble on about the Busman's MBA for a while. Finally. So if you're interested in that, I finally, finally babbled on about that for a few minutes. Um, so go check it out. Uh, it's for real and all your podcast players. You go to bookwright.com slash... That show, you can find it there as well. I'll put a link in the show notes. 
That show is so good. I'm really good impressed show. by them and by um, Jess and Trisha, who are hosting When in Romance, which is our new romance show, and by like how good they are from the jump. Like I would be horrified to go back and listen to us five years ago, probably, because yeah. five years is a long time in podcasting growth. But they just like mm. came out of the gate so solid. The chemistry is great. The shows are put together really interestingly. If you like nonfiction of any kind, you're going to like For Real and Alice and Kim are a great pair. Um, I'm going to go listen to this Busman's MBA thing because for years I've been waiting for a post about it that's just, you know, not Nothing day. will be new to you. You've heard me babble <laughs> about all this crap before. So you're, you're, this will be retread for you, but other people it may, it may not be. Um, anyway, go check that out. Uh, they also do prep for their show, which, you know, mm -hmm. we might consider at some point. Um, <laughs> you know, it'd be interesting. Their show notes have like actual notes and not just a bunch of links. But anyway, this is our show. It's raw. It's real. It's live to tape. That's what we're doing. First up, um, the Nobel Prize in Literature for 2018 canceled. Done. No 2018 Literature Prize. This was announced this morning. Um made public this morning, decided yesterday at their weekly, Swedish Academy's weekly meeting. Mm. According to the press release, this was in our own Erica Kearns reporting for us. There'll be a link in the show notes if you want all the details. The decision was made in view of the current diminished academy and the reduced public confidence in the academy. That is code for the poop storm. Yep. They could have just said, we canceled it because of the poop storm um, growing out of, well, go back and listen to the other episodes, uh, but a Me Too-related series of accusations against someone closely related to the Swedish Academy who, you know, uh, awards the, the Nobel Prize for Literature every year beyond the scope of what we want to talk about here. But we got another Me Too related story today. And I, I guess this is leading me to ask this question. Did we think it was, you and I talked about the very beginning of the Me Too stuff with Harvey Weinstein, mm. that it was going to come to the book world, and that we thought it would be bad. I have to admit, I didn't think it would get this bad but I, i'm naive whatever oh. i'm just that's i'm just saying what that's where i am right now i did not think it would get as bad as canceling the nobel prize <laughs> i mean that's pretty bad yeah, right well it's a big that's it pretty bad. A big thing um yeah but in terms of the size of it i feel like we have a long way to go like there are going to be a lot more of these before we're done. What, what else is there? The Pulitzer? I mean, like individual authors and people in yeah. publishing. Like we haven't right. even seen it touch public, like, you know, publishing executives. <sighs> no, we haven't. Um, no, we haven't. It's like there's a, this is just the beginning, buddy, um, which I'm so sorry. This is to the say. beginning. Yeah. We're not even the middle. We're not even, we're, we're still in the early adopters. We're not even in the, the well, early majority. I, what is the crossing the chasm yeah, thing? I think we're in the first quarter. Oh, Rebecca. Okay. All right. Well, you know, I wish I would have known that like six months. No, I'm kidding. But like, um, so, and they say they're going to award two next year. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't read that. Which is interesting. It'll be the first time since World War II when no award was given. World War II, mm -hmm. there weren't Pulitzers given. There weren't, you know, people were just like, you know what? Let's just not for right, right. now. We'll come back and deal with this later. Interestingly, Erica notes here, or I think it's here, or she noted somewhere else, that there's only one time that the Nobel was not awarded since it started in 1903 for non-war-related reasons was 1935. They said there was no one worthy of the award, which is, of course, hilariously <laughs> wrong. Um, but <laughs> they're just like, you know, let's take the year off. Uh, Everybody just needs a vacation. Um, I'm sure we could go back. That would be a good piece. Who should have won the 1935 Nobel in Literature? 
If only oh, someone we knew wrote for a site and specialized in early 20th century. Uh, oh, English Jeff. I wonder who you need that, one more thing I to do? Who. Yeah. I, the last, I was trying to think the last time I wrote an actual post for the site. Oh, like, years, probably. It's been a while. It's been, it's been years a while. for me, it's I'm been sure. A while. Um, you know, um, I'm glad anyway. they're doing this with the Nobel. Like, it is a big deal, but I, I don't think I would want to be the person who won the Nobel in the year that the committee was tainted. Um, it's Yeah, it's I, a, that seems fair. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're making the, the committee is making the choice or the Nobel organist. The Swedish Academy has made this decision for mostly reasons of covering their butts. Um, but yeah. I think it also has a knock on effect of no one's winning of the biggest prize in literature will be clouded by having won under right. these circumstances. Right, because if it's a woman who wins it, then that's like it's a sod, it's sucking up, it's whatever, it's tainted. If it's a dude, well, look at these guys, you know. Look, I mean, mm-hmm. you can't go, you you can't. The winner was in an impossible spot. Um, I just hope. Well, you know, this is often given to older people. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, okay, let's move on. I guess I, we knew that one was was coming, or at least I did, that they were going to make an announcement. And I sort of guessed when I saw that they were going to decide on the fate. I was like, I started thinking through it. I was like, they're not going to give an award this year. They're just not, they're just not going Mm -hmm. to. Um, This other news was, I guess, both a shock and a not shock in the way that we sort of live in the world now. Um, Juno Diaz accused by multiple women of a variety of... uh, we got a little heat for calling it sexual misconduct in the headline. We, I mean, book riot. But I think that's fair for this reason. It's it's a strange group of activities that altogether look very bad. Individually are, I don't know, the whole is almost greater than the sum of its parts here, I feel like. I don't know. What do you think about these behaviors? How, how It's different. This is the same story, but also a little bit different, I guess, is what I'm Yeah, it's, you know, and also this broke this morning. So we've had about, like, I have had about three hours right. <laughs> with this information. Yeah, and I've only, like, looked at it through um, my fingers while stress-eating chocolate, yeah. so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm catching up. Um, I think, well, I don't want to get too into defense or explanation of how we headline things. Um, oh, no, no, I was just saying, but I think that's meaningful why we chose I, that. Like, I do, I do think that misconduct, yeah. in this case, I think that misconduct is a correct term for the behaviors that we've heard so far today by noon on May 4th. Um, Mm. By the time this show comes out, uh, who knows where this conversation will be or if there will be other people coming forward with other stories about Juno Diaz. I don't know. Um, That's just the way that these things tend to go is a few people speak up and then more people speak up. So by the time you're listening to this, I don't know what Mm -hmm. we will know about him. Um, But from the accusations that I have seen today, I think that misconduct does apply and correctly describe them. And it's not a, that's, it's not a softening. Um, We haven't seen, I don't want to graphically describe anything um, or accidentally like trigger somebody, but we have not seen an accusation of rape. So like someone on Twitter was like, why don't you just call it rape? And it's like, well, because no one has accused him of raping them so far. Yeah. We Um, don't know that. So that's the other thing that's different about it. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I would say like, that's sort of where the, the language is. It's um, this piece, Juno Diaz in particular, this is complicated by, 
um, the fact that a, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, I don't remember exactly when he mm-hmm. wrote a piece in the New Yorker acknowledging for the first time um, it was the first public discussion of abuse that he experienced as a child. And it, like it, that is as a work of writing, it is a very moving um, yes, kind of incredible is. thing that he did. It's a really beautiful piece of writing. Um, there are acknowledgments within that work that in response to like, as he has been shaped by the abuse he experienced, he has done harmful things to people. He says, I hurt people, I believe is the quote. Um, but of course there are a lot of ways to hurt people. Um, as humans, we all hurt people. So like when I read it, I thought like, well, of course, because this is what happens in life. Like we are shaped by bad things that happen to us. We do hurt people. He's acknowledging that. Um, there's been a lot of like Monday morning quarterbacking on the internet today of yes. like, oh, well, that piece in the New Yorker was, he he only published that to cover for these accusations that were going to come out. And I will say like, maybe that's true. Um, I believe it's possible that other people read that, maybe people who know him or who knew that the these allegations were floating around or who have heard other rumors about him. Maybe they did read that piece and think, oh, he's covering here or, oh, I know what he means when he says I hurt people. Um, But there's been a lot of like, well, anybody who thought that article in the New Yorker was like that, that was good and that it wasn't coverage for something. If you didn't see this coming, how could you not? And I've, we've been sort of chewing over this this morning in the book, right? Contributor Slack and where I am on that is that, uh, well, first of all, I don't want to walk through the world with the assumption that everything that I read by a person might be a cover for some terrible thing that they've done. Um, This is just not the way I want to exist. Um, Diaz's work in particular is really interesting because it does contain, I think, both misogyny and critiques of misogyny. Um, He sees the ways that his Mm -hmm. culture has shaped him and he sees the problems in his culture, but he clearly is not all the way out from under those. And um, from these accusations, it seems that he has not processed all of that in a healthy way. Like it is not surprising that people who experience abuse sometimes become abusers. This is a reason it's not an excuse. Um, It's also, you know, many people who experience abuse do not become abusers. So it's not a get out of jail free card there, but there's a lot of nuance and it's really tempting, I think, to throw the nuance away in these conversations and say either like, oh, I saw it all along in all of his books forever. Um, no one should ever have been a fan of his or, oh, I predicted this or, oh, no one should have been surprised by any of it. And like, I'm, I'm really sad. This one is hitting me the hardest um, of the ones that we've mm. seen so far. Like I have been more attached to Juno Diaz's works and to Sherman Alexie's. And um, I would rather be surprised by someone's bad behavior than surprised by their good behavior. Um, and I'm just sad. And like, just really. Well, and logically, sad. you just can't prove a negative. You can't prove a negative that no one's right. ever done anything, right? So you almost <laughs> it's 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 a very difficult logical space to to inhabit. Not not to make it sort of about symbolic logic or anything, but like that that's a truth of it. I mean, the hurt language. I don't know. I don't know what that's about. That people are wanting to um, retroactively. I don't know. Guard proscribe however you were supposed to read that particular article because like if, if someone asked me have you ever hurt anyone i would say yeah of, of course. course you know i've heard you know you people show my dad my parents my siblings my kids like but that's i would never use that to describe the kind of behavior we're talking about here so that that usage is true i think i would let myself and others reading off the hook myself mm-hmm. do whatever you want i mean i don't care but i i think that is 
pretty. That's putting the the bur- that's also a, why am I in Sabah's logic territory? Burden of proof fallacies is like so you have to, the burden of proof is on the wrong side to say oh you should have realized that he meant he did these acts. And we're putting a link in the show notes. We're not going to talk about what he specifically did um, or what the accusations are. The other thing that's different here, at least as it's breaking, this is not a name that I had heard. I don't want to make anyone, you know, think that I knew something mm-hmm. I didn't or didn't mm-hmm. know something I didn't. You know, you can tell us if you had heard. If not, that's fine. But what's different here about this one is these are published women coming out publicly on Twitter mm-hmm. to start the conversation, yes. which to, to my memory is not one we've seen in publishing, that that, that it mm. happened this way. Right. It, is, am I got this right? I think um, so. Um, I think this is the first time we've seen it start on Twitter, but honestly, I, yeah. there's just been so many of and these. And people putting um, their name to it immediately, you know, not, not an anonymous comment that turned into going on the record, but like right. an, a, 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 a change in how the the truth of these things is coming out. I, I did that's the first actually the mm-hmm. first after it was like who it was, how it happened was the first thing that I noticed. Like, yeah. oh, this is different when, somehow. I, or I know this is different. I don't know if it means anything or not. I thought I would just mention that. Yeah. That I think the I mean, the question always is when we're at this moment in it, then how will yeah. the person respond? Um, and will there be an apology? And the, you know, the Sherman Alexi one was like a non-apology, weird, disappointing thing. No, um, I, no, think I have a new are... word for those. Do you want to mm-hmm. hear my new word for those? Yes. It's an apology. Oh, like, it's mm-hmm. appalling. Yeah. Like it's yes. better. Oh, it's better in print. Okay. But, <laughs> um, you know, but like, that's not a, that's a sorry, not sorry. Yeah. And poop. Storm. You know, I think there, like that's another different poop storm. There are some, commonalities between Juno Diaz mm-hmm. and Sherman Alexi, not necessarily in terms of the things that they're accused of. Um, and certainly so far, there are not nearly as many Juno Diaz accusers as now the pile of women um, who have come forward with stories about Sherman Alexi. Again, who knows what that's going to look like um, for Diaz in the next couple of weeks as this thing comes to whatever the fullness of it is. Um, but Alexi, I think, really had an opportunity that he missed to acknowledge the ways that the abuse and the difficult experiences that he had had shaped him and to express sorrow for what he had done to the women that he, to, to what he had done to his victims. And I think there is room here for Diaz to do the same thing. That is, it doesn't make it okay and it doesn't really make it better. Um, but I think the best possible outcome is um, for Juno. The thing I am hoping for, I guess, is for Juno Diaz to tap into that same place of uh, very vulnerable expression, like what we saw in the New Yorker piece and say, I did these things. I am sorry. Um, I have been a victim of things. And so I understand the like deeply the kind of pain that I've caused Um, and leave it like acknowledge it and leave it and then go forth in a new Mm. way. Um, this is, but that's the hope every time. Um, I hope certainly that like by next week we are at least talking about um, having seen a good apology. Um, but going to be tough. I still don't know what that. I still don't know what that looks like. Frankly, I, I don't know. I don't know well, what it looks like. Yeah, I mean, um, I think I don't know if I if I would knew. I don't know if I would know if I saw it. Um, hmm. I don't know that we're. I'll speak for myself. I don't know. I'm ready to hear a good apology. If that makes sense, or that like, you know, like oh, that's interesting. I, I'm just not ready. I'm just not well, ready. It to certainly hear doesn't it. mean like it sort of it that sort of like. asks the question. I think it's important for victims to hear apologies. Um, to yeah, have the no, harm I'm saying that for was me, caused to them. Yeah, right. Yes. Um, for people who had harm caused to them, it really matters that they get to hear the person who did the harm, acknowledge that that harm was real, 
and Mm -hmm. apologize for it. And I think like these are the components of a good apology is, yes, I did this bad thing. Yes, I understand why it was bad and how it harmed you. And then like sort of implicit in that is also, and I will not do that again. Um, And and that doesn't, it doesn't make it, it doesn't make the past any better. Um, It doesn't make the wrestling for readers who are not the victims of these people. It doesn't make the wrestling with what do you do with this, art by someone that now is not a person you want to have to deal with kind of way. Like this Mm -hmm. one's tough. Um, I have a friend who was thinking about an Oscar wow related tattoo recently and was like, wow, I'm, you know, like, what do you do with that? Um, would it almost have been better if they had had it before? Because it was like, well, I got this when the work meant something to me and I didn't know, but how do you decide if you're going to get it now? Um, there's Mm. just like for the, for being a reader, I don't think apologies ever make this better. Um, I don't think we're nearly far enough in, like I do believe we're in the first quarter of this stuff. We're not far enough into it to have any idea of what it would mean to decide if or how or when to re-engage with some of these people's work. If there is a redemption arc, I don't, I don't know. I like, I'm not ready for that yet. Um, I just don't think that we've had enough of the conversation about what the harm is to be thinking about what redemption looks like. Um, but it's, here we go with another one. I am, I'm really, I think you can hear it. Like I'm, man, I'm, I really sad about this. Yeah. I mean, in this one too, um, I don't know. In some of the conversations I've seen already this morning, again, these things are evolving. I wouldn't hold yourself, anyone listening. I'm not holding myself to have to, to have these same feelings forever. If I'm having them right now, mm-hmm. I do feel like I'm picking up a little bit of, I I mean, I think it's been true of of some of a lot of the authors that we've talked about so far, Alexi and, and Diaz, principal among them, of not wanting to throw the work and the person away, but also not wanting to overlook the behavior. Like, can, is there a third way, right, basically? Mm-hmm. Like, how do we get to it? How, how can some people wanting to find a third way of keeping the work, but also keeping the truth of what happened in mind at the same time? Now, I think that's an interesting problem, an interesting challenge. Um, I don't have a good... I, for for public figures, there's not a good model for it, right? It's either the redemption arc, you're either all the way back or you're gone. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, there's one of those things. I think this is going to end up, for me, something like if someone close to you does something very painful, that is short of, really, I have to cut them out of my life. Because there are things like that, like, sure. you know... If these, if if you, if it's short of cutting, how do you come back to having a relationship with someone that you've had trouble, that there's been real pain inflicted before, and those relationships are, they have they have layers, they have scars, they have wounds, but they still exist. And I wonder if there's a possible future for some of these authors in the public discourse of those, or or amongst, not even the public discourse, because one thing we've seen is that some people just don't care, whatever, Mm -hmm. that's fine. But the kind of people who do care, book nerds like us, is there a kind of, I don't know, uh, some kind of different understanding relationship with these authors and works that is not gone, but that is transformed? And still exists. Um, I, I feel like I see people trying to wrestle with that question. I don't know if that makes sense if I, what I'm trying to communicate there, but I feel like a third. People are looking for a third way, and I don't think I don't think it's I don't think it's trying to dismiss or ignore. I think that is one way people you can go. People can go that way, but I don't think that's what people are trying to do. 
um, with these. Now, maybe in time we'll find that that third way isn't possible. But in just just in terms of seeing people trying to process this one especially, mm-hmm. and I think it's some because he has acknowledged he has pain, he has his own flaws, and it's part of his work is and Alexi to some degree too is. Okay, well, we know if we know people aren't perfect, is there a layer of this that we can take into our understanding of them that that changes it, um, that compromises it, that complicates it, but it doesn't evacuate it? And I think I think that's also where we're going to be. You know, until we answer that question, I think maybe we're going to be stuck, or we're not going to make progress. Or you know, if we decide there is a way or isn't a way. These things are going to feel very similar for a while, mm-hmm. I guess. They're all going to feel very similar if, if, unless we can come to sort of individually, collectively, some kind of third way of understanding what these things yeah. are. Yeah, you know, I think f- for me, part of the reason that I'm not in, in a place of the third way yet is that I haven't seen a good apology and acknowledgement. That yes. especially yeah, for I think that's fair, Especially fair. for people whose work is not only shaped by their lives, but is explicitly about their lives um, in the way that... Alexi and Diaz's work is, um, that I could get, I think, to a third way with Juno Diaz if the next work were, if he apologizes and acknowledges everything and the next work is an exploration and explication of his stuff. Um, that like, that when you know these things about someone, you can cat, you can cast backwards onto like, oh, this sheds new light onto this thing in their fiction, or this sheds new Mm. light onto this thing that I thought maybe I picked up on in the memoir or that I didn't pick up on at all, but that people pointed out later, like it can give added, what we're getting here is a whole lot of context that we didn't have before. Like I am not willing to find a third way for an artist who is not willing to come to their audience and just to the general population with, with an admission and an acknowledgement of the harm they've caused. And so like Sherman Alexi seems like he's not going to go there. I guess I am not going to be re-engaging with Sherman Alexi. Um, If, if we get a follow up, well, much like much like that, Mike, much like much like like this relationships in our actual lives I was describing, usually there's, there has to be some kind of reckoning. Right. right. Yes. Reckoning the, is the word apology, I was reaching for. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An apology is necessary, but not sufficient. Yeah. And if there is a it, road to whatever the third mm-hmm. way it is. Yeah. And if Juno Diaz in this case or whoever comes after him um, is willing to reckon with their own, with their mm-hmm. bad behavior, with the causes of it, with the ways that they were, they participated and were not just, you know, unwilling, you know, unaware cogs in a cycle of things. Um, if there is that, if they are willing to reckon with that themselves, then I am willing to consider re-engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have not yet seen something come out from a writer that makes me willing to have that conversation with them in the same way. Like, I think this analogy of uh, someone in your personal life is really useful in the same way that like, um, if I have a, a really serious fight with a friend or they harm me in some way, I will be willing mm. to like, you know, have coffee with them again. If it feels like that's safe, like if it feels like they understand yeah, how right. they hurt me and they're really not going to do it again. Um, and then you sort of dip your toes back into that relationship. But nobody yet who has none of the writers yet who have done this have given any indication that it would be safe to consider meeting them for coffee in, you know, the, the analogy here. No, 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 they're not. I, I guess I'm just, I'm not, I'm not even suggesting we're even close to that. I guess I'm just seeing people wrestling with their own logic of mm-hmm. what would it take, right, 
to again no one's saying to make to ignore forget out of hand forgive it's, these are serious accusations i don't want to make light of any of those mm-hmm. things um but is there somewhere between ignoring and discarding yeah and whatever that's going to look like is complicated and it's it's undiscovered country um, to borrow Shakespeare, it's always useful to go to the bard when you're looking for a phrase. Uh, that That's an undiscovered country in, in this particular moment. And, and frankly, in a lot of ways, you know, that that what do you do? What, you know, mercy, again, the quality of mercy is not strained. That's, that's Shakespeare. Mercy is tough. Forgiveness is tough. And is that for, do you have to forgive necessarily to get there? Do you have to, you know, especially if it's not something done to you, that's another, that's, like you mentioned that's a really good point. Like there's other people that have a way different relationship with these people. Mm-hmm. And they need their own amends making and acknowledgement, you know, like a 12-step program thing almost, where you go and you say to people, I know I hurt you, and I did that, and that was real. And maybe those people, and I wouldn't expect those people ever to get to some sort of third way, but there might be a way in which we can come to an understanding and say, okay, these are terrible things that happened, and we're not going to forget them, but this person is doing things to make amends, to be clear, to be honest, to own their actions, and to do better in the future. And if we can't, if, 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 if you can't let that work and author into your life again, I don't think you're right or wrong, but I think those are the things that would have to happen for it to even be possible for many of us, mm-hmm. yes, for it to, yeah. to, be, Some to make sense. necessary preconditions. Yeah. How about a segue to a sponsor? All right. Boy, that's not awkward at all, huh? <laughs> that's what we call hanging a lantern on it, <laughs> just by saying it's awkward. Yep. It's, it's less awkward. Uh, all right. Okay. We got more of this to do. Our next luckily, sponsor after, after this week is StoryWorth. Everyone has a family member who tells the best stories. And StoryWorth makes it easy and fun for your loved ones to share those stories. So it, this is really simple. I got to try it out last year and I thought it was pretty cool. You simply purchase a subscription for someone you love and each week StoryWorth emails them a question about their life. They reply with their story either via email on the web or in the app. And after a year, their stories are bound into a beautiful hardcover printed book. It's black and white on the inside. It has a color cover. And don't worry, your data is secure. Everything's private by default. So this is really a beautiful way to connect with your family. You can bridge geographic distances and learn about your relatives. And StoryWorth makes it really easy to preserve these memories and pass them on to your kids and to their future families. This is a great gift for Mother's Day or Father's Day, even if it's last minute. And um, I think a cool way to learn more about the members of your family, because StoryWorth provides the questions and some of them, like Liberty and I did this with each other for several months last year. Um, And some of the questions or things that you wouldn't know about or that you just wouldn't think to, to ask somebody. They're kind of non-obvious. And so you get answers to questions that you maybe hadn't asked your family before. You get stories that maybe you haven't heard. And I think that's always neat. Like uh, families have sort of your set of stock stories, you know, like the the joke you go back to or the story about like like Jeff and your family that one time that those ra- like raccoons ran out of the, the raccoons, Flaming raccoons of <laughs> yeah. hilarity. Like families have these like sort of your set shelf of stories. And this is a way to hear more stories about the people in your life that you didn't know before. Um, so you can check this out if you want to do this for Mother's Day or Father's Day. That's great timing. And to get $20 off when you subscribe, you go to storyworth.com slash book riot. So that's again, storyworth.com slash book riot. 
we didn't we didn't think we'd have a specific example to talk about um, with no. this next story. But lo and behold, mm-hmm. uh, we do. Um, I had thought this this had crossed my mind, frankly, um, and maybe we even talked about it when I guess it was. Well, uh, he who shall not be named's mm-hmm. book yeah. was going to be published and not published. I think we speculated about morality clauses um, that are in a lot of different kinds of contracts people have. I know more about it in sports for some reason. I guess those those clauses yeah. are th- those contracts tend to be bigger. They're more public, um, and th- if they get violated, they're in the news. Uh, I don't I don't mean to laugh, except that now that I say that, I realize there's a lot going on in that reality. But anyway. Um, Basically, that publishers are putting into contracts with authors, basically saying, if you do something bad, we can cancel this contract. Mm-hmm. And it's a little fuzzy. We don't have any specific language in a specific contract. But the I think this is it, the legal term refers to behavior generally considered unacceptable in a given community. Yeah, moral turpitude is something publishers really worried about themselves about no longer. There's a longer piece in Publishers Publishers Weekly. We'll link to it in the show notes. What's interesting to me about that is generally considered unacceptable in a given community, right? So like, I guess if you're signing a contract for, I'm just trying to think about that. Maybe it's a conservative Christian imprint. Right. Right. And it comes out and you get a divorce or something. I'm just Mm -hmm. speculating. A moral turpitude clause could be uh, enforced in that situation, even though divorce is pretty legal and, you know, generally not desirable, but also not thought of as like a sin or something like that. Right. But in that given community, I guess the idea was that it, it the author has done something to damage the value of the contract, so the contract is then void, essentially, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. Um, I don't have a hot take on this particular. I can understand why publishers are thinking about it. But it's fascinating. Do you have do you have do you have, do you have yeah, more uh, articulate thoughts than I do about it? I do. Well, I don't know if they're more articulate, but I have All more right, thoughts. All right, good. Yeah, <laughs> um, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think that the phrase in this piece that um, publishers were rarely worried about moral yeah. turpitude is very telling. Part of the and not surprising yes. given what we know about publishing, but that publishers just, it never occurred to publishers to put moral turpitude clauses into things, um, I think is interesting and revealing of some of the pipeline sources of these problems, some of the reasons that people with um, either appalling takes on things, harmful, not just appalling, but harmful messages continue to have platforms, is that it's sometimes difficult to get out of publishing those books because these are not Mm. in there. Like, And I was thinking about the world of sports as well. Like this is just a given in sports that these are in contracts, sports players, professional sports players are public figures. They are held up as role models. And so the team wants the right and the ability to say, if you behave in a way that's bad and that comes out publicly and it damages functionally, it damages the brand or the image of the team. We don't want to be associated with you. We can get rid of you. Mm. Um, this seems reasonable to me um, as a person who runs a business. Um, And it makes sense to me for publishers as well. Um, You are somehow, our association with you is now more damaging than it is beneficial. We are going to end this relationship. Um, One of the problems that I have with the conversation we're seeing about it in publishing so far is uh, particularly it's agents who object to it. And this makes yeah. sense because agents lose money if people's book deals are canceled, <laughs> um, raising concern that these clauses would be used as a way to limit 
speech. Um, or like this is a violation of free speech if you can just cancel someone's book deal because they behave badly or because they say something. Like it's noted in this piece that um, some of these would some of these clauses would allow publishers to cancel deals not just because of an author's actions, but because of their words. Um, I, th- I think this is reasonable. We've seen authors say things that are very harmful and then the publisher says nothing and does nothing. And it's maybe becoming apparent that one of those reasons is that the publisher couldn't say or do anything um, about it. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a way to get out of the, to get out of that relationship with someone who has damaged your brand or who now um, is, you know, more of a liability than they are a benefit. But it brings me back to how, frustrating it is that people who work in books and language and speech conveniently forget what free speech really means. Um, A publisher deciding not to work with you because you have said or done something that harms their brand is there like that is a right that they have to make. That's a decision they have a right to make. It is not Mm -hmm. a limitation of an author's free speech. They're not being punished by the government. They're not being thrown in jail. They're not being told they can't publish their words on their own. Um, Being denied a book contract is not a violation of your rights. Like if it's because you said or did something wrong, you know, if a publisher doesn't give you a book contract because you're black, that's discrimination. That is a violation, Mm -hmm. but not getting a contract or having a contract canceled because a publisher doesn't want to be associated with you is a decision that a publisher has a right to make and is this is a legal and constitutional thing um so the concern about like this will be you know this will be used to regulate speech like frankly publishers should care what authors are out there saying um not only because words have power and can be very harmful but because it does affect the way that people think about publishers when Simon and Schuster was going to publish Milo's book. Um, we had varieties of responses from both staff and contributors at Book Riot. But one of the things that some people said was, you know, I'm just not going to recommend any books from this publisher until they address mm-hmm. this. Publishers should care. That is damaging to your brand. You should want to take the contract away from that person if it's if it's that harmful. If they say things that cause harm, it also damages your brand. There's, there's two things there. Um, I think that um, I, I think we should have these other industries have these, of course it could be abused. Um, but yes, the fact that a, the fact that a clause could be abused, I don't think is indication or reason to not put these clauses in, especially when we're seeing here, um, that slippery slope argument, boy, right. we're really being pedantic with the logical fallacies, <laughs> right? That someone could abuse this. Well, anything can be abused, right? right? I think, you know, some of the things that agents are saying in this article, it's worth reading to the end, uh, makes sense. Like, if you, if they're going to be in there, they should be relatively narrowly constrained. Yes. And this is something that a lot of authors and agents can negotiate with the publishers. The publishers will want to take, well, they want to reserve as many rights as they can to kill a contract as they want. The agents and authors will want to avoid mm-hmm. as many constraints. And somewhere in the middle for most contracts probably makes sense. But it's also one of those things too, this is one of those places where enforcement, uh, where, where where consequences can happen. And one of the things we're talking about, I think, in the Me Too moment is where can consequences happen? Where can behavior be altered? Where can signs and signposts be put to say, mm-hmm. you know what, this is not okay. Right. And if you do this thing, you will pay the penalty. There should be consequences. And this is one of those places. There should be consequences. Now, in this particular case, let's say take Diaz, it's complicated too because for which contract? Like what behavior is it is it behavior that you did pri- previously coming out? 
Like that's mm. complicated, and but also you know what? Not my problem. <laughs> but I can right. see how that's. Is it new? Is it new activity or behavior? Like that's the stuff you got to. That's the stuff you've got to figure out. Um, but it does seem to me that the publisher should not be on the hook for an author going out and doing something terrible, and then they've got to eat the two million dollar contract, right? Because you know, like some decency and common sense in this is part of, I think, the negotiation process and like good faith negotiation here. Now, I don't think the publishers, the publishers also are multi-billion dollar international conglomerates. They can have some risk and the power leveraging of that per, that that structure against an individual author is asymmetric. But on the other hand, I don't think we're really talking about, let, let's be honest, like what kind of behaviors are we really talking about? Like it's not that much. If you if if it's if it's negotiated in a way that makes sense, so mm-hmm. I think this is something that probably should happen. It should be handled carefully, um, and you can take all of your slippery slope arguments and roll them right on down the hill. As far as I'm concerned, all right, let's do another sponsor, and then we'll we'll wrap up with I don't know talking about clubbing seals, something more fun <laughs> than all of this. I'm not sure what exactly it would be. Uh, we are talking about. The Black Witch by Laurie Forrest is a must-read epic fantasy, perfect for fans of Harry Potter and Tamora Pierce. Set in an imaginative and intoxicating university where people from all sorts of magical races, backgrounds, and cultures must coexist and cooperate, the Black Witch follows one team named Ellerin who is forced to confront her own people's dark history. In the process, she discovers that sometimes acting heroic means giving up on the hero she was born to be, and instead learning to trust the very people she was taught to hate and fear. With a diverse cast of complex and captivating characters and a rich, detailed world, this fast-moving page-turning plot will suck you in completely. Um, Number one, New York Times bestselling author Tamora Pierce loved its whole new thrilling approach to fantasy. Don't miss this powerful story about challenging beliefs, confronting prejudice, and battling oppression. That's The Black Witch by Laurie Forrest, now wherever audiobooks and books are sold. Uh, Speaking of selling books... You know, mm-hmm. Amazon sells books. Did you know? I've that? heard. I have heard. Um, I this is one of those. Oh yeah, why didn't they do this a million years ago? Mm-hmm. Um, stories. Or are, do you agree with me on that? Or not? I guess we'll tell the people what it is. Then you can we can give Shinsky's hot take <laughs> afterwards. Um, Amazon wants to attract a new type of subscriber. This is Buzzfeed's. I'm reading word for word for a moment. Bookish children, or at least their parents. A new subscription program for Prime members will send a box of children's books. Selected by Amazon to customers every one to three months for additional fee of twenty nine or twenty two ninety nine additional. Oh, I mean, you already subscribed. That's okay. You're mm-hmm. a subscribe for Prime. You have to be subscribed for Prime, which is interesting, and you get a box of book. So there you mm-hmm. go. Um, simple, makes sense. It doesn't say you can be. You know, you choose the age: baby to two, three to five, six to eight, nine to twelve. Um, they curate, this is what Amazon says, we create high related books our customer love and our Amazon book editors couldn't forget. Our editors read thousands of books every year to find selections your reader will enjoy again and again. You'll discover new releases, classics, and hidden gems tailored to your reader's age. There's other subscription boxes out there that do this. I've seen them some on my Instagram, or um, yeah, Instagram feed. There's one called, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but I've noticed it. I was like, oh, that's a good idea. And this is... There's nothing revolutionary here. This is an idea other people have done. It's just Amazon scale, right? Is there anything more interesting than just Amazon scale to you in this story? 
You know, I don't think there's much more here. It's interesting that, and I think important to note that Amazon said if the books in the box are available on Amazon for less than $22.99 at the time, that the subscribers will receive the lower price automatically. This is the kind of thing that Amazon can do. Um, Also, one of the most difficult things we know from having run a subscription service is that protecting the value proposition is really tough. When you're like, you're going to pay us $22.99, people want more than $22.99 worth of stuff. Um, And Amazon is kind of uniquely positioned um, to make sure that you're getting a good deal, but also to make sure you're not, you don't perceive that you're overpaying. Right. Yeah, um, right. I think this makes a ton of sense. Parents with um, small kids, you know, keeping a stock of picture books, it seems to be important to, to them. And also, I know you guys get tired of reading the same things over and yeah. over. So getting a bunch of getting a bunch of new books, um, this seems smart. I'm curious about whether this will be open for like publisher placement or co-op. Uh-huh. Um, well, it says selected by Amazon, but it doesn't say based on what criteria. Tell the people what co-op is. This is something I didn't know about uh, so, but, until you know um, several years ago. Co-op is money or credit. It can be credit also that publishers give to bookstores um, and play, anybody that sells books, basically, in exchange for placement or promotion. Uh, so like an indie bookstore um, might get co-op for featuring a certain title in their newsletter uh, or for a featuring a certain book on one of their recommended tables or, mm. or whatever. Um, and this is, it's just part of the deal. They're incentivized to do it. They get credit, like indie bookstores will get credit against their orders from that publisher if they feature certain titles in certain ways. And they're not required to disclose that, which is not to say that you should be suspicious. Which I don't of, get like, that. How, how is that true? I know. <laughs> it's not to say you should be suspicious of like every newsletter you get from um, from a bookstore, but you you it's useful to know this. Um, in the same way that like the books on the octagon table in the front of Barnes and Noble, that's paid placement. Um, the books on the most of the books, I should say, on the like buy two get one paperback yeah. tables, those are paid placement. Um, sometimes, like in a Barnes and Noble store, I know from my time there, you get the instructions for like a themed table. It might be like great women writers, and there are ten books you have to put on the table and then the bookseller can choose some of the other ones. So sometimes it's like a mix of paid placement and not. Um, but Amazon also can receive co-op from publishers for placement or features of titles. Um, and so I'm wondering here, like, is that one of the select, is that a selection criterion that, um, maybe a publisher has paid to promote a book and it will go into all of the prime boxes for a while. You just kind of, it's a question worth asking. Yeah. Um, and it's just a thing that doesn't, that unless you're in the industry, you don't know and it doesn't get talked about. Um, people always seem especially surprised about this with respect to indie bookstores. Mm. Like, oh, I just thought that every book that was in my indie bookstores newsletter was a genuine recommendation or... Um, that everything the, on the, the end cap tables. was a genuine, like, please right. read this Everything book. on the end yeah. cap is a genuine recommendation. I will say, like, from my understanding of it and from having enough bookseller friends, I think that you can trust most of those recommendations Mm. anyway. Like the booksellers that I know don't do placements just because of co-op. Like it's, it's a nice thing of like, Oh, I liked this book and I can get co-op for placing it. Um, not like I will write a fake review of this just to get the Mm. co-op. but that's a thing and that's how co-op works. Yeah. And I, I, in my mind, I want to be like, isn't that what payola on radio stations was? That's basically illegal. And I guess those are, FCC controlled, and there's different things about speech and paid speech and disclosure and things like that. But anyway, interesting um, sub theme 
of this is, and I think other subscription boxes, frankly, you could ask, mm-hmm. you know, are these paid? Is what's the what's the arrangement here? I guess in yeah. the end, it only matters if the the subscribers don't like what they're getting, right? I guess that's part of it. Another thing about right. kids' books, it does seem to me that. You know, I went through the phase a few years ago when a lot of, well, we're at the kind of the end of this boomlet of people in my circle having kids. But there is a a phase where people who haven't bought print books in a while suddenly are buying a whole bunch of print books and they're kids' books. And they don't know, you go into the bookstore, it's like like regular books. You don't know what there is. You don't know if what of these are any good. And a lot of word of mouth stuff, like I don't know how many units of a little blue, of little blue truck we've moved, Michelle and I, uh, in five (laughs) years. Mostly people just asking like, what books did you like? Because you go in and they all look kind of the same. They all look, sure, great. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, But what should your kids like? So there is that having people pick them for you. And, And I think that's another reason why kids books also sell in backlist, like you look at the bestseller in children's books, like kids' books, picture books, and it's stuff that's mm-hmm. it's like it's like the very hungry caterpillar is like number twelve every week, right. every week. It'd be like it'd be like if Moby Dick was still number eight on the on, on the fiction front list. That's like that's how it is. So I think there's a real. This is one of the situations. I think there is actually a real capital D discovery problem. You and I both like mm-hmm. side eye what mm-hmm. that, but in this one, I think this kids' books, board books, baby books. Are, I think that's one where maybe if it if there is a white whale, this is the this is the part of the sea in which it it, it resides. Um, so anyway, there's that. I think that's our show. We got to get out of here. It's time. I'm tired. I, I'm exhausted. I need a beer, man. <laughs> Please email us. I'd like to hear what you thought. If we anything we said sounded wrong to you, sounded interesting to you, wanted to add on to the discussion. Um, please email us, podcast at bookriot.com. Go check out Annotated, Rebecca's maiden voyage on the good ship Annotated. You can go to. Um, bookriot.com slash listen, find it there. Go listen to me babble about um, business fingers on uh, the For Real podcast. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Have a good one. <laughs>